Coming up on today's episode of the Tomahawk Show, Brady Quinn, former NFL quarterback and now analyst for Fox, joins us to talk everything from Baker Mayfield's continued shade toward Hugh Jackson, Taylor Luan versus Josh Norman, and the latest in the MVP race. He also hits on the college football playoff and if his alma mater, Notre Dame, has any shot at winning another championship. It's all that and more coming up on the Tomahawk Show. The 73 Colts you have is one of the best beers I've ever had in my life. And I'm not getting paid or uh, any kind of money to, to say that, but just want to say thank you and uh, go get your 73 Colts now. Great Lakes Brewing Company. All right, go hawk yourself. Welcome back to the Tomahawk Show presented by Uninterrupted. Look, make sure you're interacting with the show on social media at Tomahawk Show. We have an ever-growing social account all anyone does is tweet us and it's awesome we read that thing more than we read the homework of our children so make sure you're hitting us up there also subscribe to the podcast rate us five stars our five star ratings have been going through the roof mostly because you guys are incredible and you're realizing the importance of that just the six plus thousand that we've gotten got nfd back for christmas he has since been re-kidnapped um and we have no idea where he is. We will get to the bottom of it. We're not sweating it too much because we just wanted to hear his voice. And as long as he comes back once a year, we really don't matter what kind of probes they're doing to him over in that tribe off the oh. coast of Uruguay. But, Did you say probes? Yeah. that is. Oh, my God. I don't know what's going on, man. I really don't care. We had him back for the terrible. holidays. It, I hey, hope not our problem. I hope they're keeping him clean. Yeah. That's a good. That's, that's a good. You're a better host than I am. But if you didn't know, that's the voice of Joe Thomas, our co-host. I'm Andrew Hawkins, joined as always by Fat Nat. Our guy, Trader Zerm, is back. <laughs> <laughs> Treasonous Zerm. Oh, it's good to be back. You know, I got um, a white van just pulled up to my house last week when I was going to you know, report, record the pod with you guys. I got yanked in, tape over my mouth. They dropped me off in the woods, and I just got home today. I just walked back, found my way. So yeah. um, I'm happy to be back. But, yeah, I spent Christmas in the woods uh, handcuffed, so I, it wasn't cool. great. But happy to be here. Whatever I hope she to took good care of you. Back. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, how was your birthday slash Christmas? It was great. I was I'm back up in the bay with my family. Um, my birthday gift was tickets to the Warriors Laker game on Christmas yesterday. Mm. So I went to that. It was really fun, except for the how fact did that, that game, we got yeah, how killed. Did that game end? It was horrible. Oh. I don't want to talk that. about it. It's a very sensitive subject. <laughs> but it was really fun to be there with my whole family. And plus, my childhood best friend and her mom also came. And our moms are best friends. So it was a big family affair. And it was really fun. That miss sounds awesome in the Bay. Um, double L, the fact that you have to share your birthday with Christmas and <laughs> that you had to watch the Golden State Warriors get beat by the 6th, 7th, and 8th men of the Lakers. I just take um, L's all the time. <laughs> just all kind of L's. Look, we got a good episode. We're, talk- we're back talking football, which is an exciting thing. Uh you want to just jo- jump into it, Joe? How do you want to do this today, man? I- I'm going to let you run the show since... Yeah, let's just jump right into it. Let's, let's start talking jump. foosball. All right, we're going to go around the league. A couple of quick hits. Obviously, the big story this weekend, besides the fact that the Browns are good again, right? And we've waited a very, very long time to walk around with our chest poked out, our head held mm-hmm. high. People are jealous and they love it. But Baker Mayfield, you know, he's had the the stare down with Hugh Jackson. 
the back and forth, but it's not really a back and forth because it's all Mayfield at this point at Hugh. <laughs> uh, but it, it generates a lot of tweets, a lot of headlines, a lot of articles, a lot of sports media content. Joe, kick us off with your take on the whole situation. Give us a breakdown. Joe Thomas style. Well, I thought that w- when we discussed this topic, rather than giving our take, because as the Tomahawk Show co-host, we are known Hugh Jackson apologists. Obviously. And so I don't think it would be fair for us to give our take on, hey, this is whose side we're on, right? Because, uh-huh. you know, th- there are parents. Baker's Baker's the dad. Hugh is the, also the dad. And they got divorced. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're kind of caught in the middle. And it was a messy divorce. A lot of lawyers, a lot of money. They yeah. split it down the middle. A lot of alimony going back and forth. But it just wouldn't be right for us to pick sides. But what I think the conversation that we should frame is people in Cleveland right now couldn't love Baker Mayfield anymore. The guy has rescued the franchise. He has brought it from being the laughing stock of the league going one in 15 and zero in 16. And before that you and I led him to many seasons of uh, floundering (laughs) around between three and seven wins, which was amazing. But now all of a sudden they're really good. And he's going to be the guy, the face of the franchise for 15 to 20 years. There's a great chance they win some Super Bowls. They're definitely going to be playoff contenders. They've got insane amount of cap space. There's no reason not to love this guy. But he does have a very cocky personality, which as a Browns fan, I kind of like a lot. I love the fact that the Browns were everybody's laughing stock for so long, but now we as Browns fans, we're the ones doing the laughing, right? So right. I love that. And it's great having that attitude and that cockiness. But the conversation I want to frame and I have with you is, as a Browns fan, is there too much dancing on Hugh Jackson's grave by Baker? Or is there no such thing as too much dancing? Will Browns fans, and we're going to include ourselves in this conversation, ever give Baker, or excuse me, will Browns fans ever feel empathetic for Hugh if Baker just continues to beat him, first of all, on the football field, and then mock him after he has beaten him on the football field. The first time they played Cincinnati, he went with the handshake, refused to hug, and then kind of uh, talked bad about him in the media. And then this game, he throws what turned out to be the game-winning pass to David Njoku, goes down, they're able to take a knee, and he runs all the way over to the Bengals' sidelines. He gives Hugh like the corner of the eye look, And then you don't know if that's going to be it. But all of a sudden, as he's running down the field, he turns around now and he kind of is giving him the eye. So um, clearly it was humiliating for Hugh being on that field, having Baker embarrass him like that, which I I think we can all agree that was embarrassing. So are are Browns fans ever going to look at that and say, all right, Baker, enough is enough. The man is dead. We don't need to continue to just beat him up and dance on his grave. What what is your thought? My my thought process is this. I think that Browns fans have such a disdain for Hugh Jackson that they won't get there unless Hugh Jackson literally never responds, reacts. Then after a while, the sympathetic part of any human would be like, okay, you're doing too much. If he doesn't. But we know Hugh. 
eventually he was going to bark back in some way, shape, or form whenever the, the opportunity presents itself. He's super competitive. He's going to do something. He's going to know that. There's no way There's he no, can just, He's not just going to take it on the chin and just be like, yeah, I deserve this. It's not going to happen. This is not his personality. No. That being said, as it pertains to Baker Mayfield, my take is this, and, and we talked about this offline and with me, you, Zerm, Nat, and our group chat. If Baker Mayfield and Hugh Jackson genuinely don't like each other, Right. And and of everything we've seen of Baker Mayfield so far, you would make the determination that he genuinely does not like Hugh Jackson. Sure seems like he doesn't like him. He it's has gone like out of his way in the last two going games. Going out of let his way know. to let us know he doesn't like him. Here's what I think. I feel like Hugh Jackson just found out Baker didn't like him. <laughs> whenever, whenever he got the stiff arm after the first game was the moment that Hugh Jackson figured out that they didn't like each other. And if you don't like someone that much, it gets to that point. There are people that I do not like in sports media. There are people I do not like in the coaching world. That if I run into them at CVS right now, I would hit them with the Baker Mayfield backpedal stare down while I'm heading over to pick up some Crest toothpaste. <laughs> right? And I would have no pro- I have zero problem with that. So if they genuinely don't like each other, if Hugh was like, or if Baker from day one was like, yo, I do not like this dude. I do not rock with him. I never will like this dude. I will never rock with him. I love it. I love the fact that the competitive nature is going to shine through. Be petty. Be competitive. <laughs> grab your nutsack. Whatever you got to do to show off to be like, yo, I do not rock, rock with you. But if there is even 2%, 1%, 3% of this that is I'm playing to the public of why I'm doing this, I know it's going to get clicks, retweets. I know people are going to – whenever you play into the crowd – that's the part that worries me, not because of, you know, us being Hugh apologists. In this, I'm, I'm being super objective. As a player, mm-hmm. the crowd always turns at you at some point. There well, is going to be like the Romans, right? The Coliseum. Eventually, the, the, the crowd is going to turn on you, and they're going to give you the thumbs down, and you're going to get eaten by the Lions. It's it happens to everybody. Guaranteed. There is not a person in sports ever where the crowd didn't turn on them at some point, right? Like, it's going to happen. And so my only worry that is if you're playing to the crowd, and again, I'm not saying he is because, I, again, I genuinely think he doesn't like him, right? And whether it's news to you, whatever, but Baker doesn't like him. But if there's any percentage of you that is playing to the crowd in all this, it's just a recipe for disaster because when they change on you or when they flip on you, when you do something over time, whether you have to change teams, whether you have to whatever, and I'm not predicting anything, I'm just saying even Tom Brady's, Biggest backers, the best quarterback in history. People turned on him. They say he's done every couple years. People turn on you. If the crowd is what you're playing to, it's just a a recipe for disaster. That's my only take on it. I think you're pretty accurate there. I think one thing that we need to make clear is the only thing that matters is how Baker Mayfield plays on the field. If he's playing well, there is nobody that's a Browns fan that isn't going to love him. Right. But as soon as you play bad, that's when the people that – you have polarized are going to be pointing the finger. It's just like Jalen Ramsey with the Jaguars, right? He spent all off season shit canning all the quarterbacks and everybody that he has to play all season. And then as soon as the season comes around, I don't think he's playing a bad, but people want to point the finger at the guy that had the big mouth all off season. So there, there is something to be said about just being careful about not being too polarizing because Mm -hmm. then as soon as you have a little slip up, everybody wants to point the finger and the crowd will turn on you. But as long as he's playing well, it's not going to matter. And when you play bad, they want to get rid of you anyway. So I don't know how much it really matters. Let me be clear. 
Baker Mayfield is really, really fucking good. Like, next level good. Like, when you watch him, it's like, yo, this dude gets it at a different level. Better than probably any rookie quarterback that I've seen in the last 20, 15 years of watching football. Like, it's next level stuff. One in 400, one in a thousand quarterbacks are as good as Baker Mayfield is as a rookie. Competitively, like so, when, like you said, if when you're that good, you can do whatever the hell you want if nobody mm-hmm. can stop you. And yeah. nobody can stop Baker Mayfield right now. And it's probably not going to – the only thing that would get in the way of that is having a coach that we bring in that is not, you know, bode well with his skill set or tries to make him fit his square peg into a round hole. Because Johnny Football, when he was flipping off the sidelines <laughs> and he was people doing the same thing, people loved it too until they were like, yo, you're not <laughs> – you're not very good at the quarterback position right now. <laughs> and then Ty turned on him. Yeah. So that's the only differentiator is really how good you are as a quarterback. Yeah. So the same thing that make people love you are the things that people are going to hate about you. So with Johnny, he never watched film. He didn't go to meetings. He didn't lift weights. He scored a lot of touchdowns in college. People mm. loved it. Oh, Johnny football. He parties. He goes out at night. He doesn't show up for meetings. He's a maniac. We love it. We love everything about him because he's so unconventional. As soon as you get to the NFL and your shit on the, the field is not working, all of a sudden, that's what everyone hates about you. Oh, I hate Johnny. He's not committed. You know, the same people that loved him in college for not being committed because he was good hated him for not being committed in the pros because he wasn't any good. So right. uh, not saying that that's Baker at all. But going back to my original comment about, you know, are Browns fans ever going to get tired of Baker shitting on Hugh. No. And I came to the fact that no, because (laughs) let's say next year he is still going with the over the top, hey, rub it in your face, ball grabs, like we've seen with Baker in the past. (laughs) I think by by next year, you're right. Hugh's going to have bark back at least once in some form or fashion. And by next year, people are going to forget that Hugh was in Cleveland and that he left, got fired. And they're only going to remember that it's this rivalry between the Bengals and Hugh Jackson and the Browns and Baker Mayfield. And then it's going to become a rivalry and people are going to be okay with the showboating and the cockiness and sort of like the backwards running and all that stuff because it is a rivalry. It is the Bengals and the Browns. And so I think from a Browns fan standpoint and from Baker's standpoint, go ahead and do whatever you want because as long as the performance is there on the field. Mm-hmm. Browns fans are going to worship you as the Jesus that resurrected the franchise from oh. the basement and turned it into a playoff caliber team year in and year out. So uh, go ahead Baker. and be petty. We love it. Petty Baker. Baker is really good, man. Like I can't tell you how, even for someone who has been a part of NFL football for a decade, he is better than most people, man. It, it is very special to watch. Like, love watching a dude play. Uh, yeah, it's 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 going to be a fun ride. That's all I say. All that to say is going to be a fun ride. Zerm, give us your thoughts, man. I think you guys next year, if Baker is still going over the top, because look, I am a known Hugh Jackson hater, and yep. I think that like. What Baker did, I love the sideline thing, but like that for me was closure. Like I'm good now. I don't need any more Hugh. I feel like that was so, that was the fatality and the backpedal and all of that. Like I'm good now. I don't need any more. Like if he's still going next year and poor Hugh Jackson is like coaching some terrible defense on some team and Hugh's just got that look on his face. Like I might actually start to feel bad for Hugh Jackson. So 
I think a lot of Browns fans, yes, will love it whenever Hugh decides it's, or excuse me, Baker decides it's time to uh, roast Hugh Jackson on the sidelines. But like for me, if he's still doing it next year and the Browns are just crushing the Bengals or wherever Hugh Jackson may be, I might be like, all right, man, we, we're good now. Like you, you did your thing. We're good. So I feel like there might be a faction of Browns fans that are still going to feel like if Baker keeps going with it and it just feels like he's just doing it to do it at that point, it might start not to feel as authentic. And then um, I think people may turn a little bit on that. You know what? I think, and I don't know if people realize this about the Bengals. Do you know how Browns fans feel about uh, Baltimore? Yes, they absolutely despise them. There was a video last year, a couple years ago, of uh, some guy that snuck into the cemetery where Art Modell is buried. I don't know if mm-hmm. you guys saw this video. And he put like a wizenator in so he could pee on his grave <laughs> in honor of like Browns fans. I mean, he oh, actually, wow. I think, went to jail over it. But uh, people, needless to say, Browns fans despise the Ravens for being the team that left Cleveland. There right, are right. people, Hawk, there are people here. So, you know, the Browns, if the Browns beat the Ravens the Steel- and the Steelers win, the Steelers get into the playoffs. There are people here that are like, you know, I do hate the Steelers, but I kind of want the Browns to just beat the Ravens. I don't care that the Steelers will get a playoff spot. Like it's wild. There are people here that hate the Ravens more than the Steelers. I'm not quite in that camp, but I I understand. Yeah. Hey, Brady, how we doing? Brady, welcome to the Tomahawk show, man. I've been waiting to come on this show for quite some time. Let me tell you, Uh, it just goes to show you how little Joe feels about me, considering how long it's taken me to get on the show. Draft well, we were waiting for a special moment. Uh, we figured the day after Christmas is the most listened to podcasting time of all. <laughs> so we had to wait until the right moment to pull out our most important guest of all time. You, you Quinn, are everybody. Your transition into broadcasting is going to be so easy, Joe, because you're such a good bullshitter. So I, <laughs> I, appreciate, I, I appreciate you saving this for me. Wow. Next level. <laughs> Next, Next level. level. Right Brady, here. we're talking a whole bunch of stuff right now, man. We're just going to let you jump into the conversation. We're talking Baker Mayfield, Hugh Jackson beef. Baker came out today and was saying how he doesn't give a damn what anybody thinks about it. If you think it's petty or not, he's competitive. Only friends he's trying to make is the ones in the locker room. Do you think at some point the people will start feeling bad for Hugh Jackson as Baker gives him kind of the – uh, the equivalent of dunking his head into a toilet, like <laughs> the, the swirly, giving the swirly. him a swirly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The- Clearly, Hawk, you haven't had too many swirlies in your time. Neither have <laughs> I, and I can imagine Joe has never had a swirly. Probably gave some out. Um, look, I have no problem with anything Baker Mayfield has done. I've been a huge uh, advocate for him continuing to do these antics to Hugh Jackson only because I, I feel like this, like this is kind of a deep thing for me is if, you know, a quarterback and a head coach, and especially an offensive minded one where you've got kind of a special relationship with that guy, right? Like you're his voice piece on the field, you know, so you're echoing a lot of the things that he's looking for. You know, you're really responsible for being an extension of him on the field. So it's a close, intimate relationship. And given where he was drafted and given probably a lot of the things that Hugh Jackson said to him, I'm sure they all feel incredibly disingenuous when that guy, even though he's fired, chooses to go to a team that you haven't played that's a divisional rival that you played twice more that year and doesn't sit in a box. He doesn't, you know, take on a role of being a consultant and maybe in 2019 joining the staff. 
No, he immediately goes and takes everything he's told you, everything he's taught you, everything you've done, everything he's seen you do, and tries to use it against you to beat you twice. Like, that comes off as, like, Benedict Arnold, like, kind of being a, you know, a traitor, and it rubs mm. me the wrong way. Like, it rubs me the wrong way watching him on the sing- uh, Cincinnati Bengals sideline with a headset. Like, there's got to be some rule put in place so this doesn't happen again because it, it just it feels odd. It feels awkward. I feel like it's like, you know, if, if, if Joe and I were two single guys and I break up with my girl and then all of a sudden he starts dating her the next week. Like, it, it kind of feels like mm. that. Mm. Mm. Joe tried that with me one yeah. time. Yeah, so <laughs> and I was Brady, like, Bro. About, about that girlfriend of yours. Uh, sorry, this is probably a bad time to bring that up. <laughs> no well, one knew no, that Brady uh, and me, Andy dated in college. This is yeah. all news to the Tomahawk show. Thank God. Well, let me ask yeah. you this, uh, Brady, because this is as, as a former player, we uh, played together and players get cut, right? And so when a player gets yeah. cut, a lot of times New England is famous for this for They'll, they'll pick the player up. They'll try to dig and dive into their playbook, everything they know about that team, and the player willingly gives that up. Do you see that situation differently when it's a player being cut and getting picked up by another team versus a coach being fired and picked up by another team? Uh, yeah, I see it a lot differently for, for a number of reasons. For starters, when the player gets cut, right, he ain't getting paid anymore, okay? Now, Hugh's still got – how many years did he have left? I don't think this – I think he, he had one more after year. this. Yeah. Right. So he, he's still getting that money. So it's like, if I mean, maybe there's some guarantees. It's very seldom, though, that there's guarantees left on a contract for a lot of players who are cut, right? So I'll start off by saying this. It wasn't like he was broke and, and is, like, trying to wait for someone to give him a paycheck and is trying to survive, right, to make some money. He's still making money. And, and look, I'm not going to, you know, be upset with a guy ever taking another job. I just think even the optics of how he took this job, like like I said before, if he would have taken it and he would have sat up in the booth and or or been a consultant and not you know been down the sidelines where you're visible, where you're able to see across the sidelines and look into the eyes of your other players that you were preaching to for a couple of years, like that's what rubs me the wrong way about it. Uh, but but you also have to discern that it, it's 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 different between what a player is doing, just trying to survive after getting cut by a team. Whereas we see coaches, head coaches, coordinators cycle through all the time and recycled. So um, to me, there is a big difference between a player getting cut uh, and between a coach getting fired and choosing to take on this sort of job. I'll say from a coaching perspective, I will, and I, which I can't speak to because I've never been a coach. And that is, that does give a little bit, uh, I guess, kind of more context to the situation because it is, it's very unique. I've never seen a head coach hired and take a job in the same year with another team. Like, let alone yeah, in the division. And so, and so, so why do you think that is? It's because most people, like naturally, it's awkward, is it not? Like, like for example, going back to the dating scenario, like if you start dating your boy's girl, like it's not like you're, you're bringing her over around your friends and your buddies and all that. Like there's an awkward phase. Like that may never happen, right? So it, it, there's a reason why we've never or we at least can't recall something like this happening because it usually never does. Like usually people have the presence of mind to wait until the next year and take some time off and reevaluate or, or they go about it a different way than like being right up in your face and being on the sidelines of the headset. I think you, and again, we are known as the, the official podcast of Hugh Ap- apologists. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 I agree that he made some missteps throughout this whole process. I think you're right. He should have made it a consultant role he, at the very, at the most, he should have been in the booth 
He definitely shouldn't have done the media press tour. But I will say this. I feel like the reason why it's unique is for a couple of reasons. Number one, he had the worst record of any head coach in the history of professional football. So thanks with to that, you and me, Hawk. Thanks to me and Joe Thomas. You're welcome. You know, we, we were able to put him in the history books. And <laughs> I do think that there was like this feeling of, I don't know when the hell or who the hell is going to be the next person to offer me a job or bring me in. So I can't be passing up opportunities because, as you know, the coaching business in the NFL is not based on merit. It's not based on, you know, oh, you did great as an O coordinator X, Y, Z years. So we're going to make sure. No, it's based on relationships. It's who you know. It's who your friends are. Who's who is Hugh Jackson's friend? People don't realize this. Marvin Lewis is Hugh Jackson's best friend. They talk all the time like they are literally best friends. Um, so. In his mind, it was probably, look, we don't know if Hugh Jackson or me, Marvin Lewis, is going to be back next year. So if I don't get back into the coaching game now, I don't know when that next opportunity is going to come because I was 1-31 in in two seasons as a head coach for the Cleveland Browns. And I think, honestly, that was the reason that fueled him to make the jump now to try to help salvage whatever so he can kind of build a resume in a positive way. It didn't work that way. A.J. Green goes down, A.J. Dalton goes down, the Bengals <laughs> suck. They then go on another skid. So who knows what can happen. But before you got on, here's the part I was saying. Here's why I wouldn't be surprised if, A, Hugh Jackson stays with the Bengals, and, B, he is a legitimate candidate for their head coaching job. The owners of the Cleveland Browns, I mean, the owners of the Cincinnati Bengals, think of the Cleveland Browns the way Cleveland Browns fans think of the Ravens. They hate Baltimore Ravens because the Ravens stole their team. That's what the Bengals organization feels about the Browns. We would get a speech every time we played the Browns from ownership, from personnel who are part of the Paul Brown family who feel like and still scorned by the fact that the Cleveland Browns took their team away from Paul Brown. So if there's an opportunity, the, not an opportunity, I will say, if there's one opinion that the ownership of the Bengals don't listen to, it's the Cleveland Browns, and it's based, it's rooted in, again, the fact that they were so pissed off that the Paul Brown was stripped away from the Cleveland Browns organization, which is how they started the Cincinnati Bengals in the first place, which is why they have orange colors, because they wanted the same helmets as the Browns to stick it to them on the other side of the state. I don't know if people realize that, but a little history lesson in football. Mm. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great history lesson, and here's what I love about history is there's a quote. For those who don't know history are bound to repeat it, mm. well, then maybe Cincinnati's blind to the history of what Hugh Jackson did with Cleveland Browns. Damn. I hate how that worked out. So I'm, I'm, I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> Dag it. You Notre Dame guys, man. Oh, smart guys. They're the worst. All right, guys. Let's take a quick break to talk about our friends over at Toyota. Toyota isn't just a car company. And the new podcast, Toyota Untold, isn't just about cars. It's about mobility. It's about overcoming challenges like me trying to ease up on the soda, helping people move physically, socially, and emotionally. It's about finding solutions like we try to do for Nat's horrible hot takes to no avail. When you think Toyota, you think sustainability, triumph, facing fears, celebrating life, and rethinking what's possible. In Toyota Untold, you'll hear unique and insightful behind-the-scenes stories such as how a son's love for his mother led to Toyota's unlikely origin as an automated loom company, why and how a Toyota Tundra was used to tow a space shuttle through the streets of L.A., and how robotics, other advanced technologies, and mobility services are being researched and developed to address challenges for the elderly, 
disabled and even Olympic and Paralympic athletes. Discover how Toyota is rethinking mobility in the brand new podcast, Toyota Untold. You can find Toyota Untold right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. All right, now back to the show. All right, well, I think we've, we, we have officially beaten the Hugh Jackson horse into submission. Yeah. It is so it. dead. Uh, it's already been buried. But let's talk <laughs> a little bit more about Baker because that's really what I'm interested in. As, you know, I'm an offensive lineman, so I don't know my asshole from a hole in the ground when it t- comes to quarterback <laughs> play. But we have the greatest quarterback analyzer in the history of podcasting with us. So that's I got to ask you. What have you seen from Baker on the field this year? Because I know you do a lot of games, you watch a lot of film, and you've been able to break down these quarterbacks. For those Tomahawk fans out there, give us a little sense of what you've seen from Baker on the field. Well, I think the biggest question coming in this year that you always wonder, and and then you look to see in a quarterback's uh, rookie year, or just his play in general once he gets to the NFL, is if the skill set that you see in college translates to the NFL. And, and I said this, uh, we called a Big 12 championship game last year, which obviously Baker was in versus TCU and won, absolutely lit them up. And I said this then, it still holds true. He is one of the most accurate quarterbacks I've ever seen on any level. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. yeah. any level. The, he, is, he has an uncanny ability to always put the football in a spot that does one of three things. Either it allows the pass catcher to catch and run, which, Hawk, you know how important that is. Yes. Um, it, it, it then puts them in a position where either they catch it or no one does, which avoids you know, turning the football over. It avoids any sort of momentum change or field position battle change. And then the, the third thing I feel like he does is, you know, to me, he is able to, to throw guys open, anticipate, uh, what, however you want to phrase it. He's got good anticipatory skills as a quarterback. You saw it in college. You're seeing it now in the NFL. It's, it's made a direct translation. And, and to me, I, I think it's, it's as simple as saying this. You see the moxie that he plays with, that confidence. It's contagious, and, and that's also transferred over. I think a lot of times when you get into the NFL, especially when you start going through the combine, your pro days, that whole process, everyone's telling you something about you and, and something that you can't do. Because at the NFL level now, everyone's good, right? It's now about what you can't do and what your deficiencies are. And if you don't have success early on or if you hit a spot where you start to struggle and you don't have someone reinforcing being positive or confident into you, sometimes it can be, it can be tough to overcome mentally. He's mm-hmm. not wired that way, man. He's just got yes. a swagger about him and this chip on his shoulder that he carries with him. And I think people see the passion with, with, with he plays and everyone kind of is drawn to that. So – um, you know, that's initially kind of what I've seen from him. Um, but it doesn't matter if it's on the run. I think one of the things that, again, just breaking down college and watching him this year, he, he's, he does a, such a good job with his feet of when he has to move off the spot to reset them quickly, to reset and then make an accurate football. You know, he's, he's not Patrick Mahomes. He's not um, – I'm trying to think who, I, who else I could throw into the conversation. Russell Wilson where – they can make these awkward arm throws that only them and probably you know, maybe Matt Stafford, he's a guy too that really adjusts his arm angle often. Um, th- those guys just have a, a unique special talent like that. They don't have to set their body to the throw. Uh, Baker's got a little more longer motion and release, so he, he kind of has to, but he can also make every variety of throw, and he's got such good feet and he's so quick. He can find that launch point of that spot very quick and relatively easy compared to others that don't have as good of feet. So 
Uh, I, I love everything about his game. I think you look at the way he's playing as a rookie. He, he's played the best of, of any rookie quarterback. But I also think that's in part because he's got more help around him than the other four that were taken in the first round. Awesome. Awesome analysis. Now, on the flip side, is there anything that you see from Baker when you're watching him on film that you say, this could be a concern in the future? Honestly, I mean, not really right now. I, I think he, you know, him and Josh Rosen are the, are the gutsiest in regards to taking chances and throwing into tight windows. Now, that hasn't worked out for Josh Rosen as well this year <laughs> uh, as, it, as it has for Baker Mayfield. But it, it kind of goes back to, you know, look at what they're both working with. Um, you know, from the center to left tackle, they're all rookies for the Cardinals. The right guard, right tackle that got there within like the past month. So the protection's not as good, and, and they kind of have to because a lot of times they're playing from behind. And besides Fitzgerald, they're pretty banged up at wide receiver. There's a lot of youth there. So um, th- there's, there's some things that haven't worked out in Josh Rosen's way for that reason. You know, when you got a guy like Juice, like, you know, good old Jarvis, I mean, you, you can throw that, sp- that football a- anywhere in his vicinity, and he's got strong enough hands, and he's, you know, he's, he's got that competitiveness to him where he's going to go make a play on the football. So uh, especially even in contested catches, uh, when you've got to take a chance, you know, I feel like that's going to that's gonna help out him a little bit. But uh, honestly, there, there's not a ton. Um, I think, you know, you'll, you'll, the, the question's really going to become, like, what's the next step for Baker? Because, you know, when I look at him compared to, like, a Josh Allen, and I've said this before, you know, Josh Allen is the type of kid that is nowhere close to where he could be one day. He's got an unbelievable arm. He can kind of change up the launch point and all that. He's a ridiculous athlete running the football, too. Kind of reminds you of Cam Newton uh, in that regard. Uh, and the question becomes, as they get better around him and as he becomes more accurate and as they are able to protect him better because their offensive line is not in a good spot, um, you know, he could all of a sudden end up being the best out of this class just because of his top-end potential, whereas Baker – you know, his ceiling may not be as high, but his also floor is higher than everyone else's at this point, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I think Baker Mayfield, and, and I say this, and I, this is the, also the official podcast of flip-flopping opinions. Here's why <laughs> I now love the antics and the pettiness, because after hearing Brady Quinn, our resident quarterback expert and the best quarterback analyst in podcast history, Baker Mayfield needs to be motivated. He has to motivate. He's an underdog. He is a walk-on multiple-time walk-on, come from the bottom. He thrives off having enemies. So I think it's, it's similar to the Jalen Ramsey, similar to the Richard Sherman, where they would talk themselves into a corner and force themselves to perform. I feel like that's what Baker, that's the mind games he plays to himself, whether you know consciously or subconsciously, that's it. So he's going to continue to create enemies because whenever people are talking about him that way, it motivates him to play harder to play at a high level because he's not used to being the front runner in Cleveland. He's a savior. Like, I don't know if he's ever come into any place ever in his career as the savior, whether that's high school or college here, he is whoa, done. Like, whoa, whoa. He's the guy. I got to, you know, he is the guy and he is the savior, but I, I do have to pump the brakes because, oh. and we would talk about this on our, our broadcast. Like there's a bit of a misconception of him in high school, which one, he was a very successful high school quarterback. I believe he went to Lake Travis, if I'm not mis- mistaken. Um, uh-huh. He was successful. He was successful then. The whole walk-on story gets a little bit, you know, convoluted when you talk to, like, a Cliff Kingsbury 
and you talk to some of the other head coaches, like at the time, Bob Stoops and all of that. Um, like there was another person involved. I'm not going to get into too many of the details, but there are some reservations about maybe a family member and that's how it started. But he would have had a scholarship at Texas tech after he won big 12 newcomer of the year. He chose to go to Oklahoma, which was always where he wanted to go. And in order to try to, you know, prevent potentially either sitting out a year or losing a year of eligibility to, you know, transfer rules, being a walk-on actually afforded him the opportunity to, to potentially be able to get that back. So, you know, that, that's where you kind of look at it and you're like, okay, I got to hold on. It is a great story, but the two-time walk-on thing, some of it was a, a little bit, you know, by design because it afforded him the chance to. And there's no doubt about it. When he got to Oklahoma, he was going to be the guy. Like, there's always a quarterback competition, but at the, in the same breath, most coaches usually have, know what they're going to be thinking about with where they're going with it. So, And that's uh, fine. I'm not, wanna, I'm not yeah. saying he wasn't good. I'm not saying people didn't respect him, but obviously hindsight, they're all going to talk about him in a different way. I can promise you this. In high school, he wasn't one of the top-rated recruits. He wasn't one of the top guys in the country. And when you're in that position, as a guy like myself, that used to see him. Yes, I was the man in high school, at my little high school, but at the same time, I wasn't being talked about with the other guys who were going all of the big schools. I then went to college as a walk-on. Essentially, was I going to get a scholarship? Of course I was, and I played early. But even still, I wasn't regarded with the top guys. That's what I'm saying about him being a walk-on. Not that nobody thought he was good or that he didn't think he was good, but in the grand scheme of how you're talking about people, even coming into the draft, they talked about everybody else who were doing terrible the rookies this year compared to Baker Mayfield. They talked about him, the other guys, like they were the next coming. They had all the tools. Like he didn't have the tools. I just feel like in his mind, he does create that super-duper underdog villain mentality and it helps him perform, which is why he's. I think he'll need it and continue to have to be petty, continue to have to make em- enemies. Because in the NFL, over time, once you do something for a long time, you put it kind of into autopilot. And it's hard to get motivated to go out there on a Wednesday practice in week 16 and year seven and year eight and year nine and continue to do it if you're not pushing to, you know, tap into whatever motivating factors got you there in the first place. That's all I'm saying about yeah, that. No, I, I'm with you. I look at motivation, right? It's a powerful thing. And I think most people are motivated either out of incentive or fear. Um, and and yeah. both have proved to be extremely successful. Um, but I, I think my, my only thing is, like, Tom Brady carries a chip, right? Yep. He's a six-round pick. And he goes about it in a different manner. And, and I think for Baker, you know, eventually, like five years, six years down the road, when he's still balling and doing all this, you know, I don't know that you'll see quite as much pettiness only because I, hopefully he'll find other avenues to then, you know, uh, showcase his competitive, competitive spirit or motivate himself, if yeah. you know what I mean. Like, I, I would say if there's one thing that, um, that could, could, you know, could play into his detriment based on what Joe asked me earlier is it, it is like wanting to play with that fire and passion. That's great. But you also have to learn how to control it. Because sometimes as a quarterback, too, you get all fired up and, and you, all of a sudden, you know, you feel like your balls are as big as, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I, I haven't bowled in a long time, but imagine mm. the biggest, heaviest bowling balls uh, <laughs> you could think of. And, and you think you're walking around with those things hanging from you and like you can make any throw. And at some point, you know, you got to realize, like, there's, there's sometimes a bad decision that comes along with that or a gutsy decision that ends up you know, you know, being the wrong one. And so that's just where I think as a quarterback, you got to be, I don't want to say numb, but you, you've got to play at kind of the even calm keel, even though at the same time you can still have that fiery motivation and be able to like, 
you know, get the rest of the guys to play for you and play around you uh, with that. You still have to have a sense of calmness at some point, too. Speaking of a sense of calmness, nobody has, it feels like at this time, more of a sense of calmness than Patrick Mahomes and Drew Brees, who are probably the front runners for the MVP race. If you had to pick right now and rank your MVP pick and then your runner up and your, what is it? Is it first or second runner up, the third place person? Uh, that's in the hole. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be in the hole. Okay. I'm in the hole. Okay. Just complete transition. So give me your top three ranked MVP candidates right now, Brady Quinn. Yeah, I would have Patrick Mahomes. Um, I think had had Drew Brees and the Saints, I don't know why I attribute this to like them winning and losing a game because I don't believe it should only be based on wins and losses. But had they not lost to Dallas, like that 13 to 10 game, and if they had rolled on and been, um, what are they, a three-loss team now? If, if they would have been like a two-loss, one-loss team, I, I think I probably would have given it to Drew Brees, even though his stats – don't really, you know, come into comparison with, with Mahomes. Um, and I think it's partially just because I respect what he's done over the course of his career. And I know you can't really do that when you're looking at just an individual can't year award. I know. But um, I, I would give it to Mahomes. Breeze would be the runner-up. And then Aaron Donald uh, would be third place in my mind. I just mm. – I've gotten to break down a number of games he's done. I actually have the Seattle Seahawks versus the Cardinals this week. And I was watching him – absolutely abuse um, the Arizona Cardinals offensive line. I watched him abuse the Detroit Lions offensive line. Like he's, it doesn't matter how you try to stop him. Wade Phillips does, you know, a bunch of different things to help free him up, but he's incredible. I mean, he, he really is a difference maker and, and probably is the best overall player, but he just doesn't play the most important position. That's quarterback. Mm-hmm. Joe, give me your top three. Yeah, I'm in agreement with Brady. I've got Mahomes because the stats are there, the wins are there, but also he was sort of the story of the NFL season for everybody. The way he was making his throws, the way that he was making that offense work, the way he had come from nowhere, that people on the Tomahawk show said he wasn't going to be a great quarterback this year. He used that as motivation. And to me, when you're the story of the NFL season, that's what makes you the MVP. For Drew, I think the performance he had against the Cowboys, but also the one he had a couple weeks ago against the Panthers. I think he had like 200 yards passing and an interception, uh, maybe not even any touchdown passes. They won 12 to nine. It was just unspectacular. And I think for an MVP candidate, I want to see him just killing it in the home stretch. I want to see him playing their best football in December down the stretch. And maybe it's just because those are the games that I watched personally with my eyeballs. But uh, to me, Patrick Mahomes has outplayed Drew Brees throughout the course of the season. And then I love Aaron Donald. He's been the greatest defensive tackle that I've ever seen, that I've ever played against. But I do think that Drew and Mahomes have meant more to their teams uh, than Aaron Donald. I think if if the uh, Rams would have been really good down the stretch, you know, they've struggled here. They've, they've sputtered in to the uh, playoffs here, if they would have just been continuing to dominate into the stretch, I think it would have been a little bit of a tougher discussion, but I think because of the, the way that the team has struggled that in my mind, me personally, as the voter that I've hurt my candidacy for voting for Aaron Donald. Well, there's what I'm nervous about. I feel like I've, I've read from enough media members that kind of what Brady alluded to of what, how this thing goes is that they're going to give it to Drew Brees based off of, what he's done over his career. He's never won an MVP. This is probably one of his last great seasons. Um, and I, and that is a travesty. And you, 
I get it. Super respect for Drew Brees. I do think he's one of the best quarterbacks ever in NFL history, obviously. But based on what Mahomes has done this year, and even Aaron Donald, in my book, I haven't ranked Mahomes and then Aaron Donald and then Drew Brees. And I'm going to get super analysty right now Mm. with these numbers. Mahomes has 48 touchdown passes going into week 17. He'll probably end um, at like fifth probably ever in a season. He's tied right now, I think, for sixth or maybe. He's tied for fourth right now. He's tied for fourth. He's already at fourth right now. Yeah. So he'll probably end up third, right? And passing uh, yards, he's at 48-16. If he throws for 300 yards, that'll put him, I believe, in fifth place all time for best single season. He's only thrown 11 picks. So 48 touchdown passes, 11 picks. He has 16 more touchdown passes than Drew Brees. He has nearly 1,000 yards more passing than Drew Brees. Drew Brees' passing yardage right now is best for 13th in his career. He'll probably finish the season with his 13th best season in passing yardage which is, I mean, that just sounds ridiculous that I get what he's done over time. He's just had so many better seasons than this year. And then Aaron Donald, who's a D tackle, is three sacks away from the sack single season record. So I just don't like the kind of grandfathering someone into MVP when someone like Mahomes has had an incredible year. I think you just got to go out those numbers and give it to him. Mm, Fair enough. All right. Well, hey, Brady, um, who do you like in the playoffs? Obviously, there's been some uh, conversation about the Saints and the the two teams that I loved, the Rams and the Chiefs, they've struggled a little bit towards the end of the season. So right now, the team that I'm putting out there that I think is going to be the team that can win the Super Bowl is the Chargers. Where are you standing on all this, Brady? Yeah, so uh, if, if I was to look at each one of the conferences, there's a couple of teams. I'll kind of look at it more as a favorite and then kind of my underdog. So uh, New Orleans, just for the reason that they've got home field advantage, uh, regardless of the stats with, with Drew uh, not being as, as wow as maybe we've seen in the past, some of that to me is kind of by design. I think they've you know, wanted to run the football more with what they have uh, with Kamara and Ingram. And then maybe some of what they don't have outside of Michael Thomas, no one's really stepped up outside of him uh, at the wide receiver position. So maybe a little bit by design. Their defense is playing lights out against the run. Statistically not as good uh, in the past, uh, but if you're looking at really the second half of the season since they acquired Eli Apple, and, and really Marcus Davenport, when he's healthy as he's progressed this year, um, they've got a pretty tough pass rush. So uh, that home field advantage uh, to me, combined with how Drew Brees is playing and the rest of the things I just discussed, they're my favorite in the NFC to, to get the Super Bowl. But Seattle, something mm-hmm. about that team makes me feel like they can get on a run. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's for starters the fact that they're number one rushing in the NFL. That always seems to work out well for teams once they get to the playoffs. Their defense has improved mightily, and it's ahead of schedule. I don't know that we thought they were going to turn around this fast, moving on from some of their pieces of the uh, former Legion of Boom. And then Russell Wilson. You know, that guy wins, you know, more big games, makes more clutch throws uh, than I think probably anyone right now in the NFC. And, and, he, and he put the team on his back last year. I think they led them in rushing. Um, had, like, all of their touchdowns with the exception of, like, you know, one of the rushing touchdowns or something like that. Some ridiculous stat last year. Mm-hmm. Um but he, they're kind of my underdog dark horse team in the, in the AFC. You look, the, the Patriots are probably going to be in with a bye. They're my favorite to get to the Super Bowl. I mean, it's a coin flip pretty much uh, the past 16 years, them, them getting there or not. Uh, and then the underdog team to make it, I, I actually am a believer right now a little bit in the Baltimore Ravens. Like, I just – I think Lamar Jackson, yeah. the winner, uh, that kid's going to do all he can to get his team a win. I love – 
a lot of the intangibles and obviously the dynamic ability he brings running. And I think he's improving passing. Look, he had over 200 yards last week. That's the best of the season. So maybe that'll continue to improve. Their defense is ridiculous right now. They're number one in, in uh, yards and, and points. I love, I love Wing. Don Martindale, their defensive coordinator. Talk about a guy who's got some bowling balls in between his legs. That guy will call <laughs> down pressures whenever he wants. So um, they're, they're a gutsy, uh, risk-taking style of defense, and they got the personnel to back it up. So that's kind of my dark horse to make it from the AFC. I like that the uh, Ravens won't make it because they're going to lose to the Browns this weekend. But if they would make it, they, they would have a great chance to make the Super Bowl. I, well, I see what you're saying there. Technically, they could lose to the Browns, and if Pittsburgh lost too, they'd still get in. Yeah. And Joe, Joe just doesn't want them to have any success because he basically predicted Lamar Jackson would be out of the league by week 10. <laughs> and here oh, he wow. is. Here he is at five and one. And, and you know what, Joe, <laughs> can, I, can I just say this? Like, so no, for don't, example, don't. if you look at the AFC South matchup, uh, Colts and Titans, like if Mario, I think Mariota may still play just because the kid is, he's tough as nails. And, and look, he's not the most prolific passer. If you're putting, putting between him and Andrew Luck, you're going to pick Andrew Luck. But there's something about, like, where the NFL is going right now where some of these guys just figure out a way of winning. And Marcus Mariota is kind of one of those kids who just – he's been a winner. He's figured out a way of getting it done, especially at home. Um, and, and so that's why I, I think that game's going to be a ton of fun to watch. If Gabbert starts, uh, you know, he's still got a chance, but it would just be something a little bit different. I, I just, something tells me Marcus Mariota – I guess I'd be surprised if he ended up getting declared out just because I feel like he's such a tough guy and he'll figure out a way – to try to get his team back into the playoffs. But you've got to open your mind to some of these guys who have more athletic ability and aren't as good as passers uh, because what we're seeing right now in the NFL, it, it's getting the job done and we're seeing it more frequent than maybe we have before. Yeah, I love it. Well, talking about the Titans, um, did you see the Taylor Lewan Josh Norman spat after the game last weekend? I did. Taylor went I over did. the sideline and gave him the bow and arrow right where, in his face. Where was that from you? So, uh, unfortunately, Josh Norman was not doing the bow and arrow when I was in the league. Otherwise, I would have gone over there when we beat them, which I don't know if we ever did. But if, if we would have beat him, I would have been right over there shooting bow and arrows because, as you know, I'm a uh, avid bow and arrow hunter. So, I feel like <laughs> right. it would have been more authentic. So, maybe he would have respected but, it more. Uh, dude, first off, I would have loved to see you do it because I've hunted with you before. That's why I'm deaf in one ear now. <laughs> um, which has nothing to do with which has nothing to do with a bow and arrow, but uh, I, I actually I didn't mind either part of it. I kind of like the fact that uh, Taylor Luan went over and threw a little shade at him. I like the fact that Josh Norman got him back in his face. Yeah, uh, I thought well, it was interesting. Like I, I, I just don't know who won the the, the battle between the two. I know that, who won the game. I just don't. That's know who the won question. The that's the question. Me and Joe are debating. I feel like. Like you, I love the fact that Taylor Lewan came and taunted him after the game. Like, you're talking all that shit. Now look at you, you're lost. I love the fact that Josh Norman doubled down, slapped a guy who was twice his size around, pushed him, and was like, okay, well, now I'm ready to take, I'm ready to take it to the next step. What I didn't like was that Taylor Lewan just walked off. Like, I, I have a, a strict don't touch me policy. Mm. We can talk shit till we're blue in the face. We can go nose to nose. You can talk about my mother. You can talk about my dog. I don't care. As soon as you put your hands on me, and I don't care what size you are, mm. there's only one outcome of that that is the mm. next step. Joe, mm. I guess, feels like Taylor Lewan by walking away won the battle. Joe, explain yeah. your take to me because I just so, don't understand it. Hawk, this is, this is what you've missed. The ultimate sign of disrespect is when we're about to fight, and I know you're going to fight me, and I turn around because I, I have so little respect 
for those weak hands that you've been carrying around that if you punch me in the back <laughs> of the head, I know it's not even going to hurt me. And I might just be able to turn around and slap you right to the ground. I, oh. I have so little concern for what you can do to me that I'm just going to turn around and walk away and let you do whatever you want. Cause I know that even if I get the second or even if the third shot is my first attempt, you're dead. What and he walked of- right away. And Josh Norman looked like a little bitch. What in the sticks and stones may break my bones after school special are you talking about? Like, no, you don't put your hands on somebody ever. Like, don't let, I don't care who it is. If Taylor Lewan could have been four foot two, he could have been my height, 137 pounds. If Josh Norman comes over and slaps you and pushes you and throws a helmet at you, if that's my son and I watch that on TV and I watch him walk away, as soon as he walks in for Christmas, me and him are throwing hands. Because mm. apparently you don't understand what I've been taught you. Is it, is it toxic masculinity? Of course it's toxic masculinity. Mm. That's what professional football is. <laughs> I want to see Taylor Lewan pummel him like he says he can. I feel like Josh Norman <laughs> won the, the, the little spat between them. So if Josh Norman would have hit him in the back or punched him in the back of the head or tried to choke him, which was my favorite move whenever I got in fights, Brady saw a few of those. But then Taylor would have had the ability to turn around and dust off the the tiny little scratch that he would have put on him and then beat his ass. But because Josh got scared, even when Taylor had turned his back, Josh was afraid to throw down. That's why Taylor won. And I I got to hear Brady after hearing both of our sides. I got to hear what Brady has to say. Brady, break it down for us. Yeah, I I appreciate you both kind of playing out each side. I feel like (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> I may still be somewhere in the middle where, like, Josh Norman may have won the battle, but Taylor Lewan won the war. Oh, okay. uh, I just I, – I can't help being a nerd and looking at it from, like, a more analytical standpoint where <laughs> I, I feel like if you're Taylor Lewan, did he probably want to do something as, as a rebuttal or in return? Yes, but also, like, think if he somehow got suspended for this week's game, that'd be a huge loss. So <laughs> I, I'm not sure it was worth it so much for him to respond, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not – I guess I'm, I guess I look at it this way. I thought Josh Norman, from what I saw, I thought he got the better of the spat. So I, I guess if you had to declare a winner, okay. I'd be more apt to decide with Josh Norman. All right, yeah. that, that's fair enough. I got one more question. Do you guys remember the Richard Sherman versus Trent Williams spat after that I game, do. where Trent punched him in the face and yes. Richard took it? Who won that battle? Trent. No. Yes. Yeah. No, Richard, Richard was won that. Talking all that stuff, and he was like, "I'll see you Wait, after the did- game." Richard Sherman is like, yeah, okay, see me after the game. Richard, after the game, goes to shake hands, tries to buddy up. And Trent is like, no, you don't get to talk all that shit and not have to pay the piper. Yes, so, freedom of speech does not free you of consequences. You get punched you. in the face. Yes, okay. But here's the point. If you punch somebody in the face and that person falls to the ground as unconscious, the person that punched won. If I punch somebody in the face and they act like it didn't even happen, I have now lost. Because... I am Ooh, so weak. Good point. I have not won the battle. Uh, I don't know, man. My I only take on that. I, okay, I, I get it. Point. I guess it's all rooted in that. I'm going super Stephen A. Smith because I'm passionate about this. I'm, <laughs> it's all rooted in Joe acting like a big guy is the winner. He's a good fighter because he's big. And I'm like, you know how many bigger guys that I've choked out in the submission? And I can't wait to like, <laughs> I'm going to get a simulator to show what it would be like for me and Joe to fight. <laughs> And like with my, like Goliath was the underdog. He didn't have a chance against David. He didn't have the quickness. He didn't have the hand-eye coordination. It's, it's philosophies like that that got Goliath's village overtook. 
All right? That's just what I'm saying, Brady. Super Bowl weekend. That's all I'm saying. Get your tickets now. Fuck. Tomahawk. Fight. We may be fighting dude. each other. Is this actually point. happening? Is this actually is it, happening? This is happening, man. Is it, can, I be, can I be the referee? Can I, can I, put on, can I be the referee? Can I be uh, – is, is it Herb Hand? Is that, is that who does the UFC matches? Yep. 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 Perfect, oh. man. No, Herb oh. Dean. Herb Dean. Herb, Herb Hand's an offensive line coach in Texas, I think. Herb Dean, I think. <laughs> Bring them both, man. They're all going to win. Rolodex <laughs> brain memory going on over there. That's impressive. Right, Only if you promise football. maximum hair product. We got to know. The Tomahawk, they, they threw in a bunch of questions for us. They want to know how yeah. great your hair is on TV and how – sorry, that's not a question. They want to know how you make your hair that great and what hair product you use. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, let, let's share some of the secrets. So, for starters, what people don't realize when you have to go on TV is – you know, you, you, you put this crap in your hair, acting like you're going to be on TV and you're really not on that level. If you are a color analyst for a game, you're on at the beginning, maybe at halftime, maybe at the end. And then maybe if your producer likes you, he throws you on a little bit more, which I don't think our producer does because uh, he doesn't <laughs> throw us, uh, Joe Davis and I on very often. But really you put it on because you've got your booth open to the elements. And sometimes, man, it's like it's windy up there. You're down on the field before the game. Um, and you've got these headsets on and off. So you got to throw up like some cement in your hair just to keep Ooh. that stuff from like moving around. So you don't become a meme on mm. social media with, <laughs> with the way your hair looks. So, um, I'm trying to think of the stuff I use. Um, I forget my, my barber sent it to me. It's called, uh, I, I can't even think of it off the top of my head. Um, I used to, I used to use like some like crew products, like the basic crap, something like mm. that. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm trying to make it look like I use less because it, it gets a little over the top at some points. I'm so like, like you know I don't I don't want to be David Carr. Like have you seen David <laughs> Carr's hair on NFL Network? Yes. Like it looks like you could you could literally like add, drive on top of it. It looks like rock hard. <laughs> you know I, how much I, money? I feel like I, I. What's that? You know how much money Jimmy Johnson has made off of hair product advertisements throughout his career? That guy's probably made more selling hair product than he has doing the uh, the Fox pregame show. So you could oh, be the next guy. Yeah. More is better. Well, yeah, so look at uh, look at Erlacher. He's got hair now. And he's, he's getting paid off that. But by the way, Jimmy Johnson didn't make uh, that much money off the hair product. There was also a product called Extend uh, uh, that he made a lot, a lot of, a lot of pills. Of too. Yeah. That's where he yeah. really hit it, Rich. Spice right. is still on TV. He must be just doing it as a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last football topic of the day. We have got to talk Clemson-Notre Dame, the big Cotton Bowl match coming up this weekend. I know – you're going to be all over that being a Notre Dame alum. And I got to hear, first of all, three reasons from Brady Quinn's mouth why Notre Dame will win this game. Uh, one, they've been underestimated all year long. Um, I think they're a lot more talent than people realize from years past. So it kind of starts there. Like People just have constantly underestimated this team. Uh, two, the quarterback, Ian Book, incredible improvisational skills. I know how good this defensive front is for Clemson. It's one of the best in the country, but they may be without Dexter Lawrence, depending on uh, the B sample from a drug test he took. If it is also positive for Osterine, I believe is the substance, he'll be out for the game and suspended for a year. So he'll pretty much just be getting drafted next year in 2019. Nonetheless, uh, they've got a very talented front, but Book's ability to avoid the rush, make some plays outside the pocket, he's tough. Uh, when things break down, that's where he becomes special and he'll need to in this game. Uh, that's, you know, one of those big keys that I think has helped them remain undefeated this year. 
And then, and finally, number three, their defense doesn't allow a ton of big plays. They give a decent amount of cushion, but they're well coached. They're very disciplined. Um, they, they, you know, they don't take a ton of chances because they don't really have to. They've got Jerry Tiller and Julian Aquara, two of the better pass rushers uh, I think Notre Dame's had in a long, long time. So I, I think their their defense is better up front as far as the athletes there, you know, and their ability to get to the opposing quarterback and then not giving up big plays. So those would be three reasons why I think they got a shot to win this one. How does this Notre Dame team stack up to all-time Notre Dame teams? Are are they up there? Can they be one of the great Notre Dame teams of all time, do you think? You know, it's it's funny when you ask the question like that because uh, I think you could make the case you know, they'd be up there with the best, if not maybe the best, only because they're undefeated. And if they were obviously at this point to win a national championship, they'd be undefeated. And they've done it in the most difficult era ever to win a national championship in the sense that you've got to play in a playoff and prove yourself twice in sudden death scenarios in order to win it. So I think you could make the case where, you know, again, they're arguably the greatest. And at the same time, you, you know, you're kind of curious to see, um, you know, what happens with some of the talent on this team and where they go in the NFL. Because, you know, for some reason, when we look back at a lot of Notre Dame talent and those teams and how they performed or their success, uh, people always look to see, like, what they did once they got the NFL or kind of where they go, where they get drafted. Like, I feel like we tie the success of a team to the amount of talent they had. Like, everyone makes a big deal about what the Miami team. Miami, uh, yeah, back two, in the early, 2000s. Yeah, like, and just how many first-round draft picks they have. And they're like, man, that was the best team ever. Not only because they won a national championship, but look how talented they were. So um, you almost have to look back with that perspective, you know, once some of these guys start getting drafted to see where they go, to then look at, you know, I guess how much talent they had uh, in comparison with some of the uh, previous national champions, if they could win it all. All right, Notre Dame beats Clemson 100-0. to Then they're going to have to play either Alabama or Oklahoma. How do they match up against those two teams for all of the Notre Dame fans that are listening and just dying to know, is this going to be the year that they win the national championship again? Yeah, uh, they match up much more favorably with Oklahoma. I think everyone does. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know that, I don't know that anyone matches up well with Alabama. Um, look, as far as Oklahoma goes, their defense is uh, pretty terrible. I mean, they're bad in the Big 12, and that's saying something. Um, they can't get much of a pass rush without bringing pressure They've actually gotten worse after they fired Mike Stoops and then brought in Ruffin McNeil. They got worse after that standpoint. Um, their experience lies in the linebackers and their secondary. Um, those guys can be opportunistic and make some plays from time to time, but largely they give up a ton of points, ton of yards, ton of big plays. Uh, you know, I mean, if you can stop Kyler Murray from destroying the game once he gets outside the pocket running or, or making some plays downfield, I mean, you, you got a shot against Oklahoma. So I, I think they match up much better against a team like that uh, than Alabama. I mean, Alabama, um, I, I don't know that anyone matches up with their speed with their, at their wide receiver uh, position. Um, they'll, they'll be potentially missing their left guard for the semifinal game. He started about halfway through the season, uh, but he could be back for the national championship game. But outside of that, I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's a, a man on the field as far as the matchup where you would make the case that Notre Dame would have the advantage. Um, so it, it's going to be a tough matchup, both from a speed standpoint, a scheme standpoint, um, but again, I think Notre Dame hasn't been a team that beat themselves at all this year. I mean, you look at the way they play, they play some tight games, maybe don't meet the expectations of our friends out there in Vegas sometimes, but they find ways of winning football games. Uh, and I think that's, um, uh, that's what you're hoping for. If they were to go to the national championship game and take on Alabama. Brady, what do you say to the haters that say that 
for Notre Dame not having to be in a conference and have that really hard game at the end of the year, like at a conference championship game, that gives them an advantage over the the other BCS or uh, power conference schools. What do you say to the haters that say that Notre Dame should not be in the playoff because of that? Well, I, I'd respond by saying, what do you mean, like a team like Northwestern? Um, yeah, who, exactly. You know, they, they, ended up beating, they ended up beating on their own home field that played the Big Ten championship game representing the Big Ten West. I mean, like a good team like mm. that. Um, oh, you know, boy. Who, and just, so, look, my, my response to that is if the, if the committee has already opened the door to two teams, right, in previous years, Ohio State and Alabama, teams that didn't even win their division, okay, and still got into the college football playoff, uh, then, then why not with Notre Dame, considering their strength of schedule, uh, who they play, how they go about playing. I mean, it's not like they have an FCS opponent. It's not like they have – this year was one of the first years we've seen a group of five opponent um, pop up on their schedule. So I mean, outside of Navy, which, by the way, say whatever you want about Navy, there's not too many people who want to throw them in there and play against an option team. Sure. Um, so I, I, I would say this. I, I don't know until they absolutely have to, they need to. And I kind of like it. Like, one of the things that is interesting to me is, you know, you guys both, uh, or in, in particular with Joe, I mean, you guys probably talked about winning a Big Ten championship, right? Or winning the division that you were in at that time in the Big Ten, then a Big Ten championship. And Notre Dame, you, you go there just trying to win a national championship. You don't talk about anything else. So I, kinda, I would hate if they joined a conference for that reason, too, where the standard then becomes, I don't want to say watered down, but yeah. almost like after the season, you're like, yeah, well, we won the Big Ten championship, and then you know we went to a bowl game and won our bowl game. It's like it, it just kind of means more uh, when you talk to some of the past players who are like, yeah, it's all or nothing every single year, and I kind of love that about it. Yeah, no, that's cool. All right, brother. Well, hey, man, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on the Tomahawk Show. We had a lot of fun doing it. We hope we can yes. do it again. And why don't you go and tell the listeners out there where they can listen and watch you for the rest of the football season. Oh, geez. Okay. Well, I've I mean, not every single one, one, but, you know, just give us a okay. summary here, maybe. Cliff's <laughs> over. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Sirius XM, 11 to 3 p.m., Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You can find me on Channel 88, CBS Sports HQ. That's their digital platform. You can find me there. And then this week, I'm calling the uh, Seattle Seahawks versus the Arizona Cardinals game Sunday. And then I'm actually calling a bowl game, the Red Box Bowl, Michigan State and Oregon on Monday. So, I've got mm-hmm. – a lot of work ahead of me, uh, but the bowl game, uh, I believe both will be on Fox, but uh, the Seattle, Arizona one will obviously be uh, just for those particular markets. Well, yeah, you do have a lot of work. And so thanks for taking the time. Are you selling anything right now? I thought I saw you maybe selling fit tea on Instagram or maybe that waste, was Quinn Brady. Shame. That might've been no, Quinn Brady. No, I think no, no, I'm no. following her. Uh, also. No, no. I don't, I don't <laughs> sell anything. Uh, I, I take a product called Zipfizz and this is literally I'm not promoting them. It's not like I'm not whip getting it? paid it's by like them. Like a drug, a street drug, or something. <laughs> no, dude. It, look, you got kids. I got kids. Hawk, do you have kids? I have three of them. So you know this. Like, coffee's not enough anymore. Otherwise, <laughs> you might as well just you go right to the cocaine. Drink a gallon of coffee. Yeah, I was just gonna say, unless I want to snort an eight ball of cocaine, uh, I have to resort to like other things and zip is, is a great product i'm sure they love being mentioned along the likes of uh a ball cocaine uh, hopefully none of us are getting paid by them yeah, i'm not so this isn't this is, this is fine so we can say whatever we uh, want it, 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 it's like drinking a cup of coffee and then it's like having a bunch of b12 vitamins so you All mix right. that with a little bit of water that's i'm actually about to take one right now 
Uh, right. But that's <laughs> that helps me stay awake to make sure I'm not being a negligent parent. Well, that's the first Tomahawk guest to get high on air. Brady, <laughs> we appreciate you joining us, man. Excited to have you back again, dude. Make sure this is not the last time we see you here on the Tomahawk. Sounds good, guys. Hey, have a happy new year, too, guys. And go Browns. Go Brownies. Go Brownies. I love it. We can agree on that. Yes, sir. See you guys. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the next Kirk Herbstreet, our man, a big Tomaflockian, good friend of the show, Brady Quinn. That was a lot of fun. As always, having guests on that uh, know Hawk and I, and they know football. So good to talk a little bit of college ball. I think that just about does it for today's show. Make sure you tweet us using the hashtag Tomahawk. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Tomahawk Show. Subscribe and rate five stars. Please do that because, as Hawk mentioned at the top of the show, I think we are on pace to set the record for most five-star ratings in podcasting history. And it was very interesting. We had uh, some interesting research come in this week on the podcast numbers. And not only do we have over... 3 million downloads in 2018. As everybody knows, we were the most downloaded podcast in Ohio in 2018. Mm -hmm. But actually, we got some interesting numbers back. There were seven countries, count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven countries that we were the number one most downloaded sports podcast in the entire country. So USA was not one of them. But if it was, can you imagine how (laughs) awesome that would have been? Either way, we've got fans in Norway, Spain, Uruguay, Thanks to NFD, Switzerland, Denmark, <laughs> Germany, Ireland, yeah. all over the map. They it's love the it. Tom Hawk show. Final thoughts, Mr. Hawkins. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog, Joe. And I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> so you don't have to punch me out when you give me those most tired of boring cliches because <laughs> I've fallen asleep and you've already won. All right, well... You know, everyone has a plan so they get punched in the mouth. Michael <laughs> Tyson. Nat. Joe, hawk yourself. <laughs>